Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening. Welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. In the aftermath of the 2019 World Cup, uh, David Nusifora made a report, amongst which the work-ons for the Irish uh, men's senior squad was to uh, work on their mental strength. Um, in the aftermath of this World Cup, David Nusifora will be preparing his probably his last report on the overall health of the game and making his recommendations. What do you think will be his recommendations after we've uh, gone out at the same stage but in a different fashion? In 2023, um, I think he will look at minutes played per squad member. Um, I think he perhaps decision making from kickable penalties, not unlearning or forgetting points from previous World Cups. Um, I think they'll have to be conscious of the willingness, stroke the cost for families to join the camp when the tournament is further afield. So I don't think there's any existential angst to what his review is going to be. I mean, Ireland, as has been said numerous times, got knocked out in the quarterfinals again, but it was basically the width of Geordie Barrett's tie, as has been said on numerous occasions. Um, they went 13-0 down, but they they didn't capitulate. Um they played well in the match that they got beaten in. Uh, they didn't get beaten by very much. It was one score. They were attacking near the end. Like they're and and Ireland won the rest of their matches. They beat. They were the only team to beat South Africa. Um, they comfortably beat the teams that they were better than in Romania, obviously, but also Tonga and, and Scotland. They they saw off comprehensively. Uh, both of which could have been banana skins and. Curious to see what he does right a bit. Um, I do think that, like the tournament being in France, and again, something that was much heralded is that, like, Farrell was very big on the families being about, very big on how happy players were. You know, very important that players considered their families and their loved ones. Um, but that, and that's quite easy to do when. The games are on in France and the the, the camp is, is in tour. You know, like there's direct flights. It's not very far. It's in the same time zone. Um, much harder to do when it's in Australia and harder to do again when it's America. But like, I mean, let's not be like Eddie Jones and thinking eight-year cycles. Like, let's just go like the next one's in Australia. It's four years away. So, yeah, they'd be the main points. I think probably interesting... If he looks at what other teams do, I think as well, and I think in particularly the 2011 All Blacks, like they, they made a point with their individual players to give them very targeted work-ons. Uh, probably an overused phrase, but the one that I always recall is the man Nanu had to work in his kicking game. Um, he was a brilliant runner. He was a great offloader. He was physically powerful. 
but you know you wouldn't have associated him with having a kicking game at all and they were like look we, we want to play basically this all-court game like we we don't want teams to be able to easily plan what we're going to do and he was expressly told to go out and work at his kicking game and he did to the extent that his kicking game actually became quite good like Richie McCaw don't have the quote in front of me but like Graham Hansen said he basically couldn't catch a ball uh, brilliant player when he started you know great great open side you know great breakdowns brilliant tackler fit as a fiddle but he goes actually ended up reasonably skillful <laughs> mm. and it was a kind of a it was an endearing backwards comment from a mark of respect from from Hansen to McCall but it was and I'll paraphrase him but it's, it's along those lines so you know I think Ireland have to appreciate how close they were to beat New Zealand and you know they would have been in the final had they beat New Zealand and they would have had a real good shot against South Africa so to get to that next level like really it's it's kind of it's, it's marginal gains like it's every cliche in the book here isn't it but like these these are the things that make a difference yeah I think one thing that I thought you were going to say there when you said look at other teams and how they the lessons you can learn from other teams is that you look at oh, certainly I looked at South Africa and you already mentioned it in passing, you know, the opportunity to take kickable points rather than kicking to the corner. Um, a short-term work on for uh, for Ireland will be to, we have good line-out players, we have talented hookers. Why did our line-out malfunction so frequently? Uh, it wasn't a complete disaster by any means, but it was a, it was a, a set piece which was... Um, you know, it was uh, inconsistent, inconsistent at best. Like we had one very clean performance against the Scots, which was quite uh, monochromatic or monosyllabic in whatever way, like in that it did one thing. It was go to the front. Now we moved the, the people who jumped around at the front a little bit. Uh, but it was it was the set piece which hurt us most. The second set piece which hurt us against the against the uh, New Zealanders, and again this was both a short term and a longer term work on, and it's a it's a player personnel issue. It's the scrum because from my point of view, with Sexton's retirement, there's a bigger gap now between one number one and number 17, then there is only any other position on the pitch. Like Andrew Porter is now the most vital player in the Irish squad going into the next six nations. Our second best loose head is Keane Ealy, who's 36. Our third best loose head is Dave Kilcoyne, who'll be 35 in the six nations. And they're both a huge step down from Porter. And um, like that... That inability to to like to have any one sort of like so many people correctly named Oxenshay as their their you know prop of the World Cup certainly their loose head of the World Cup and that was the South African sub. Um, so maybe Kitchoff is feeling a bit hard. Maybe he's the uh, Sam Hoytlock of twenty eleven. <laughs> but um, like we didn't have a, we didn't have a one two punch in number one. It was Ireland's weakest position. And a loose head prop is not a position we've struggled in really ever. We normally have a good selection of talents. Um, so those are the things which, like, there's an awful lot which went right in the World Cup. There's not a huge, as you said, there's no existential threat uh, to the game. And 
as you get higher and higher and closer to, you know, the outstanding performances, those percentage points become harder to pick up. I think just to pick up on something you said almost in passing is that it's very important to not forget all the things you've improved upon along the way because um, fundamentally everyone was telling us that the game was in rude health before we, you know, three days before we lost to the All Blacks and uh, whatever, three weeks later, there's still a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth and wailing going on. But ultimately the same thing, it's like people were able to get up for the World Cup and be excited about the World Cup, you know, just months after most of the team lost in agonizing fashion for the second year in a row against La Rochelle, which now seems like a distant memory. Um, it wasn't that long ago, you know? It was just, in rugby terms, quite long ago. So I think, uh, yeah, don't forget all the good they've done. And if they're going to be um, putting a lot of emphasis on the psychology of the squad, I'm sure that will be part of it. It's like to, you lost a rugby match. There's another rugby match coming up. And in fact, the next Ireland international rugby match is fucking huge. It's the first game of the Six Nations against France. And it's months away. But like, that'll determine who wins. So, um, plenty of opportunities to get back on the horse. Yeah, I was looking at the review from 2019 or sorry, some of the comments that were made in New Sephora's conference when he, present, he presented his, his review to the, excuse me, to the media. And he talked about the performance anxiety and the psychological side, which we talked about a few weeks ago. But he also, he talks about the style of play and the fact that it wasn't developed. And he says, look, the, the coaches looked at it and, you know, they sort of decided, should we go down that path or does that create risks or what sort of playing base do we have? And it was like, we could have gone down that path, but there was no guarantee that would have got us a better result. It creates a risk. We chose the path of let's stick with what we do and try to get an extra 10 to 15%. Should we have armed our players with more tools? In hindsight, we should have, but that's easy for me to say. But it's easy, but that's easy for me to say that sitting here now. It potentially could have really turned to custard for us. It's a learning for us in terms of managing the future. Now, apart from not being familiar with the phrase turn to custard, which I personally love. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing, turning to custard. Um so I really don't know, but I, I do think that's an important thing, like that the the ability to play well in more than one way is is really important. So like it's it's kind of hard to begrudge Artie Savea his his world player of the year award, considering he'd been so good in recent years, considering like he, he really never stopped for New Zealand over the Jesus, like over the last four years, like he was really good in, in 2019. But I find it hard to accept that Peter Steftatoy is not the best player in the world. And I thought he was tremendous against Ireland in the set pieces in the lineouts and, and like really caused us a headache. I thought he was tremendous against France in the wide channels, both in, in challenging for high ball and being comfortable enough to play out there in his handling, in his threat as a ball carrier. And I thought he was tremendous in the final by just nailing Jordy Barris repeatedly and stopping the All Blacks main go forward threat, aside from Marty Savea. So you're looking at a guy who played extremely well. And he was he was the springbok that was on for 80 minutes, pretty much uninterrupted. Like everyone else got taken off at some stage. Uh 
Bongi, they couldn't. And even though he was wrecked, but like that, that, that his hand was forced there. Peter Steff to Toit, he had no interest in taking off. He took off everybody else, including mm. Etzebeth and Mostard at different times, Khaleesi, including Khaleesi, yeah. everyone. But he keeps on PSTD. And it's just, it's that idea of being able to do more than one thing at a really high level just makes you, it makes you a great player. It really does. Like being able to play well in more than one way. Because, like, how do you plan for it? How do you know which version's going to turn up? So I think I think Ireland have to look at that. They probably have developed it, but... Um, Just and I guess the next thing is what they have to do is they, they probably have to widen the net a bit. Like, I, I think... You know, there, there was a few guys I definitely would have had in the squad um, for the World Cup. One of them was Calvin Nash and... I know everybody loves Keith Earls, but personally speaking, I don't know what Earls' voodoo magic is off the pitch. I, I couldn't have accepted he was a better winger than Calvin Nash at the end of last season. And I certainly can't accept he's a better winger than Calvin Nash at the beginning of this season. So I would have to sort of surmise that what happened in between, like a Calvin Nash played against Romania, I think he would have scored three tries. Would he have been part of the leadership group? He would not have. Is he in the squad? You know, he was, so he had an opportunity. But... Uh, I also would have liked to have seen Brian Gleeson in there just to sort of go, Asher, like, I think I'll just put the shits up the the other back rows just to see, you know, can I can I pick him? You're not going to pick him, but you're sort of going, like, he's fucking class in the, in the under-20s World Cup. Sure, what's the harm? You know? Um, I'm really where I'm going with the Gleeson thing is that when do you start trying to cast the net wider for you're, you're saying to guys, like, these are the skills you have to develop because form is massive. Like, you're not going to know four years out what your team is going to be like. You just, you, you can't legislate for injuries. You can't legislate for drop-off in form. Um, you can't legislate with age, you know, for age catching up in you. So, you, you know, you, you need to be kind of daring mm. with who you approach. And I think it was, thanks for bringing that new Sephora quote up about, because I remember... Custard. Uh, about custards, yeah, and about giving players the tools that they need to play better. Because I remember at the time, the rumor that I had heard anyway was that um, Joe Schmidt tried at one stage, basically after the Australia game, tried to say, listen, we're going to do something different now. And that the players who had been coached by him for you know five years at this stage weren't, they couldn't, Either he couldn't coach it, what he was thinking of, or they couldn't adapt to it. And then he goes, well, put this in the bag. It's like, this isn't, we seem to be going backwards rather than getting better. Um, if you recall when Farrell started, like we had good and bad results. It's some fucking awful performances. Yeah. Might have won the matches, but like they were gone. We had some, we had some, you know, we had some, like we, there was a learning curve when, when they were getting used to what they were trying to do. And at the start, like it wasn't really apparent what he was trying to do. Like there was a lot of, there was a lot of sort of muddling performances and everyone likes Farrell. Uh, so they're going, no one's going to throw him under the bus. He wasn't an unpopular guy or he wasn't a guy coming from one of, as a, with a provincial background of, I used to be this, I used to be Munster's head coach, I used to be Leinster's head coach, where there's already a coterie of people ready to hang you after the first fucking drop pass. Um, so he brought in, like in his first uh, Six Nations, he brought in Doris, 
uh, Ronan Kelleher, Deegan, Hugo Keenan. Like he was already doing, um, oh, Andy, what you were just saying, like casting the net wider, changing players. And I think like, for example, players you mentioned there, Gleason would be one. Um, like the players who've been real standout performers at under 20s level. Like I'm not saying just good players, like the standouts, James Colhane, Gleason, guys who've won, yeah, Sam Prendergast. Postletwish. Postletwish. Like those are players that he will look at. Big Tom. Yeah. Um, Crowley's already in there. But like those real, uh, Paddy McCarthy, Basher Ball, those, those are the players he will say, there's a, like if you were 20 this year, you'll be 24 at the next World Cup or 25 in the next World Cup or 26 in the next World Cup. Prime. So I, I think he think it, there's good reason to keep together when you, when you look at the end of end of a World Cup and the start of the next six nations, they're roughly three and a half months apart. So there's good reason to keep together a squad that you've done an awful lot with over the last year in order to win a six nations and win win trophies, win matches. Uh, and our tours to South Africa, but I think that Farrell is he's not a conservative. The only thing is slightly conservative about it is selection. But in terms of going out and grasping opportunities, good at that. He's daring. So I think that some of those guys will be in a training squad. Nash, Tommy O'Brien, other guys who are showing up now. I think as well that um, not to forget what they did well, and particularly the physical conditioning that the squad had that, and the preparation that went into it. So Jack Conan... And I must have put it somewhere else, but Jack Conan was talking about just there was a few things they did wrong in 2019 that he didn't really want to get into, but he felt that like and all they'd really seem to have done was do an awful lot of rugby training for 2023. But he said like they were really fit and they did seem to be fit. Mm. But you also look at Wales and you go, Wales are extremely fit and it went an awful long way for them. Um, that albeit they lost to Argentina, but you go, well, that, that's because they're not that good. But, like, they, they won their group. Yeah. They were top of their group. I thought they could have easily got knocked out of that group. Agreed. I didn't realise, I don't understand, I didn't appreciate how bad Australia were going to be. I thought Fiji would beat Wales, and I thought that would be enough. And um, it wasn't. Like, Wales had a pretty good World Cup, um, and they could have reached the semi-finals because they had a cushy draw. Mm. But, you know, that would have... That would have been an extremely good World Cup, but like it, it would have been uh, in in some ways a fair reflection of where they were, given given the draw that they had. Yeah, and Wales, I think, do like I think Gatlin does run the bollocks off players in training and make them like it's not all like there's two different ways to skin a cat. Yeah, only two. <laughs> That's okay. Well, so um, overall, then uh, let's do uh, what news David Nisfora does to Irish rugby in. Yeah, well, this Do is a report card. This is a great talking point because it's all surmise. Uh, Nusifor has operated with such secrecy. Uh, I think that's the right word for it. He has been reluctant. Sounds like he's um, shies away from doing media. He just decides he doesn't want to do media. He'll do one media per year, which in today's world is astounding. You know, he dislikes 
doing media. He thinks this is just a fucking necessary evil. He gives nothing away. Everyone comes out of that going like, Jesus, like what do we do to Newsom for all the journalists that, that he's, you know, that they've offended him personally. So his, his, his role, he's in his ninth year now and he'll do 10 um, because uh, by the accounts that I've read, uh, Humphreys will spend a year, essentially a year shadowing him, learning the ropes, so to speak. Um, we've only known one person in this role. This role was not built for David Nusifor, but at the same time, it may as well have been. He's the only person who's done it. No, He's, no, I, I, I think it's important. Go no, on, anyway. go, go ahead. I, I wrote about this, and I when I saw Humphreys had been uh, appointed, I went to find the article that I wrote about it. And what I really appreciate was, like, while it's much easier producing the blog and doing the content, the the articles... Uh, really stack up because mm. you have to put so much effort into writing them down that you remember an awful lot about them. But they also serve as a, as a, as a good reference point. So my thing about the role was that there was a lot of talk about News of Fora when he got appointed. And what I said in, in, in my article was that that sort of gets things in the wrong order. It's natural that people will concentrate on the personality, but that they weren't looking for something. They went... They didn't want to find something for Nusifora to do. He wasn't mm-hmm. on their books. Um, they had a guy like Ray Southern, for example. Ray Southern was involved in in the union as a sort of a development officer, and he was coaching Suttonians. And he ended up having some sort of coordinator role, but it was like they had him on the books, and they need. And he was a Kiwi, and they they kind of wanted. It wasn't like that. They they created the role first. They decided they wanted the role, mm-hmm. and then they went out to find and they to find the person to staff it. And that person was New Sephora. But it was an additional cost. Mm. It, it wasn't that like they had a salary there already and they just had to sort oh, of tweak no, I, it around. I appreciate you know? that. I'm sorry, I might have so, been unclear there. Yeah, but I, I think that is important to say. Now, so the fact is that everybody thinks of it as the New Sephora role because he, he's, he's been the only person in it and he's really defined it. But back. Yeah, so that, and that's the thing in that now we know who the successor will be. And I'm sort of getting to my end point first, but I think it's the most important, the most interesting element of it to me is like he has he has defined the role and is the role defined? Um, sorry, will that role stay defined by how Nusifor has done it? Like, or can somebody change how that role is perceived and how that role is carried out? Uh, so by dint of having a different personality than David Nusifora, who I would describe his, the bywords for his his reign have been... Uh, Custard. <laughs> Custard. Heart, well, I would have said, or, or his hard-headedness, um, secrecy, um, and, and bullishness. You know, the ability to basically not give a fuck what other almost everyone in Irish rugby thinks, whether it's the provincial CEOs, the provincial coaches, fans, media, nobody seems, he doesn't seem to be affected by their, um, any sort of negative opinion they have on him. The role is incredibly powerful. So their negative opinion of him doesn't really matter. He only answers to one person. That's how it seems. I think that's also right though. Like, in terms of a job description, he answers to the CEO. He doesn't answer to a union 
um, you know, a committee of blazers. I think normally like the professional game committee, he, I don't know if he reports them. My understanding is he reports to uh, Potts. Yeah. I did report to Brown beforehand. He reports to the chief exec and that's it. The professional game board, I don't really, un- I don't think, I don't think they know what they're doing in relation to New Sephora, mm. being blunt. Um, they, again, like in that article, I just thought that the big losers in the appointment of New Sephora were the Blazers. Correct. Like, they're, they're not going to take away the travel perks, but like they're irrelevant. Um, and you wrote another article about the composition of the professional game board and the fact that there was no representative from the national team on it. Like the Mick Carney wasn't on it. Declan Kidney wasn't on it. Somebody made the point in the comment that is it harder for Kidney to be on it because, because basically of contracts. Like do you give somebody a contract and then not pick them? And how do you explain that away? Whereas it's easier to sort of talk in the shadows about that. And you sort of go, yeah, maybe. But is it like it's kind of backwards. Like it's the, the important point is that there was nobody from the national team, no representative given out the contracts and frequently, and I suppose most prominently with Sebo, there would have been comments from certain players in the media that was Sexton went to France and he got picked and always made the point that he went to France before New Sephora was appointed mm-hmm. and before New Sephora negotiated his contract. So my memory again of this was that Gracer, Stiff Sexton and Sexton said, Fuck you. I'm off to earn what I'm worth. Sexton says as much in his book. I'm I'm off to earn what I'm worth. And you know where to find me. And you're and you're still gonna pick me. And that never happened under New Sephora. Ireland didn't lose any first rank player Uh, to an overseas. And also as another element of New Sephora's role and now Humphreys in the future's role is that contract negotiation period used to be used to sort of dominate the headlines from end of November internationals through to the start of the Six Nations. There'll be three months when it's contract negotiation season, and such and such a player has been linked in advance talks with Toulouse, Toulon, Claremont, Racing, Stad, uh, and this kite flying slash co trailing exercise, which the last one of those is so far ago that I can't remember it. You know, it might be, it might've been Jamie Easley of 2016. Like that does not happen anymore in Irish rugby under New Sephora. The contracts get taken care of much earlier. There are fewer, I think there are fewer national contracts, but from, from what we understand, like the players are well remunerated by typical standards. Um, and it's been something which has been completely cleaned up. You mentioned something about New Sephora there that I think is very uh, worthwhile to repeat. He doesn't seem to care um, whether people like him, which is so atypical of anyone in a public role these days. Absolutely. Great. Um, well said. And he is, um, what was it? How did I describe it? he becomes a lightning rod for certain types of criticism about the Irish game and basically everything that's wrong with the Irish game or is perceived as being wrong with the Irish game as a whole. Uh, And let's say in particular, the women's game is not, has not been run well. I think he took a a punt that backing the sevens thing would work and he got that wrong. Um, I think 
but if you just do a very like obvious comparison with like the state of the Wales game, and I know Wales got eliminated at the same stage the World Cup as us, but the state of the way the the provinces are and all the stories that were coming out about the WRU last year or the English game, and I know they don't run the clubs, but like with their league going bankrupt and uh, or the clubs within their league going bankrupt and um, sort of dissatisfaction across the game on a national scale, I think it is very <laughs> pertinent to see or to point out that a guy who's essentially hasn't done anything in terms of like PR or charisma has clearly done quite a good job. Oh, that's a good point. He is. We, he hasn't I, tried, he hasn't tried to sell the good job he's done. He's just done it. It's yeah. Show not tell. Well, that's very well put. He is a cipher. He remains a cipher. So I don't know if he socializes with anybody, which is a difficult thing to do for like not socialize with anybody for a, a decade in the country. Like, I don't know what, what he does. It would be hard to do, harder to do for an Irish person in Ireland. I I suggest than an Australian person in Ireland, um, but it is a great point. His his um, refusal to engage meaningfully with the media. I the way I have said it makes it sound like a negative thing. What is negative about it? It hasn't. Her, his as a functionary as a functionary of the state it hasn't hurt the state at all there's been no downside to it curiosity all of our curiosity has been peaked and you'd love to you'd love to sort of be able to not that you would sit down with him because i don't think you convince him to to send him, but just to know what he knows he's i'm sure he does socialize and i think he he talked about it in or he was referred to an article like that, you know, he, he's got circular friends. The word that wasn't used to describe him that was on the tip of my tongue and you were going through it is strategic. That New Sephora has made a number of big decisions of where he's wanted to concentrate and they have basically shaped the game in Ireland. And he... He hasn't really been a detailed sort of guy. He's he, he has a strategic mindset. That that's what it looks like to me. In that he's sort of gone, look, this stuff's important. The rest of it isn't. I'm going to do the important bits, and you know, <laughs> to, to custard with the rest of it. Um, and that that's that's been really important. That he's he's not really been swayed by any sort of topicality. It's. It's really worth highlighting that his reign, his tenure, whatever, will end at the Olympics with two Irish sevens teams competing, the men's and the women's teams, and that is completely new Sephora. Like there was no sevens team stroke program stroke anything in either gender's code when he arrived, and he's made it a thing. Um, it would be wonderful if one or both of those teams could medal. Um, and the fact that the games are on in Paris means that <laughs> not dead in the corners. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means that they could get like they could get traveling support. It means that they'll be on at a time of day when people can actually watch them. Like it, it could actually engender excitement because it's a very exciting game. Like I, I thought that um, the the Buccaneers is at Jordan Conway. 
would be one of the stars of of the last Olympics, and it like it didn't really didn't go that way. But like I watched them play the repertoire that they had to win in Monaco, oh, and brilliant. they were brilliant, and he was brilliant. Um, and that was that was Nusa Four. Like that was one of the things that he really decided upon himself, and like it wasn't like no one else was crying out for it. Um, and Ireland have had internationally. Most obvious one is, is Hugo Keenan, but like other guys have played sevens rugby. Jimmy O'Brien would be another one. Uh, Will Connor's another one. Yeah. Um, that those guys have gone on to contribute to the national team. What about so strategic would be enormous. And what about the rest of it in terms of the strategy, not just around the national team? What kind of influence do you think he's had on the provincial teams? <sighs> Yeah, good question. And I think this was something which was set in train by, a, when you were talking about Ray Southern earlier, I thought you were going to mention Eddie Wigglesworth, who held a form of the role, but one that was answerable to uh, union committees. Um, so what I'm referring to there is when Wigglesworth um, cut down on the number of non-Irish qualified, non-Irish eligible players in... in um, provincial squads at one say 2012 I think it's gone this 11 years ago and I remember when he did it was in the middle of so in the middle of sort of Heineken Cup season and I thought at the time it's like Jesus do this during the international window when it's obvious why you would be doing it rather than it looks like you're set out to handicap your professional teams um at that stage if, if you recall it used to be Six six foreign players, then it was five plus one under the project player, then it went to four plus one. Now it's really like you sort of have three non-Irish qualified players. The project player is essentially dead in the water. It takes five years to qualify through residency now. But every year there's been a not every year, sorry, sort of almost every every four years, they've shrunk by one the number of non-Irish eligible players in provincial squads. So we're down to what I would sort of see as a productive minimum. I think if you go down to two, it's maybe you're actually hurting more than helping. There's always going to be a a gap in in a squad that you need to go to the market to. Um, But as a result, like there's there's fewer, like there's, there's probably about 12 there's probably about 12 or 13 non-Irish qualified players playing professionally in Ireland. Whereas in the past, there could have been 24, 25, 26. So that has, in terms of the provincial game, that has arguably hurt a little. But the continued um, profitability of the French clubs has meant that it's, difficult to be in the same market as them in terms of salary anyway and the salary issue is that if you have a team which has a number of internationals in and you have one johnny foreigner getting paid more than them you upset your own salary system it's like well i want to be paid 750 grand per annum like i play for ireland so there is that sort of there is that sort of balancing on an economic uh site that has to be done um, I think he has sign off on every player that comes into the country. So I think that the provinces have to present the player to him. I don't think, I think whether that happens 
at the uh, at the outset before they approach the player or whether they approach the player gauge interest and then go to news four or whether they approach the player essentially sign it and then go to news four i don't know how that happens i think that happens differently for different players um but yeah you've heard, i think a lot of people have heard a lot of people who be listening to this have heard rumors of different sorts of players being linked with provinces at different stages i know peter steph Toy was at one stage linked with going to Munster and blocked Stephen Moore further back. The Aussie hooker was was apparently the, almost a done deal. Israel Dag at Leinster. Um, various names of Matt Gitto at one stage was apparently being lined up to go to Leinster, which would have been great. So, as you, Andy, as you said, the, the strategic overview is, is part of his remit, looking down the line at where Ireland might need players, where Ireland are shy in depth chart. Oh, yeah, and, and, and like an making the decision to, to concentrate on those. So I was looking at an article from his 2015 review, and again, it said like it was a highly detailed World Cup review in the month or so following Ireland's exit, interviewing key players within the squad, the coaching staff, the management team, influential figures at each of the four provinces. So very similar to what they, they did in 2019 as well. And they said they had loads of findings. News Four indicated that many of them belonged in the domain of, quote, incremental gains. So he sort of acknowledges that they're there, but more the focus is on, like, what's really important. So again, like, having that strategic mindset. And then he he concentrated on the segment of the 2011 World Cup review, which I think is important. It goes to truly produce a crop of world-class players. It's vital to ensure that there are no obstacles in the performance pathway to stop the development of talent in all positions. The current discussions about the number of foreign players in the provincial teams is a crucial issue in this respect. While the concerns for provincial success are understandable, if the priority for Ireland is to continue success in the Six Nations and the Rugby World Cup, then maximising the exposure of up-and-coming players is vital. And, you know, just to take the most recent weekend, I looked at the the teams, the starting teams, I suppose, for the four provinces. Leinster had Nadai, Jenkins and Ala Alatoa. Munster had Nance Kibble. Ulster, I don't think, had anybody. And Connacht had Byron, I'm sorry, uh, Hurley Langton. And everybody else is Irish qualified. So there has been that concentration. Now, like obviously Munster had Damien Dialende. They have a pair of South African second rows, one of whom was was an NIQ mm-hmm. in, in, in Klein, but is now gone. So now like they're looking to get rid of Klein. And Klein is like, I don't want to leave. Like, you know, Limerick is my home. Yeah. But you sort of go, well, you know, you kind of made that decision yourself, John. Like that's that's the trade-off, you know? Um, nobody in Munster is going to tell you that, but like, this is the way it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think particularly looking at Leinster's guys, I like because Leinster are bulk suppliers to the Irish national team. They have an awful lot of their first team gone for large swathes of the season, so they've been allowed to have three foreign players, but they haven't been allowed to have any one really good one. So you're sort of going like, geez, could Leinster not go out and sign even Etzebeth? And maybe they can. Like, it'd be great if they could sign him for like three months at the end of the season when they actually need him. Um, And, you know, or whoever in whatever position, like, you know, the 
like they must be attractive enough that they could get a really high level player. But the fact is that guy would be an impediment to somebody in the Irish team, almost inevitably by being at Leinster. So you're kind of going, have they only been allowed to sign the caliber of overseas player that they can get their hands on, that they can get good squad players, but none of them started the Ireland Cup, Cup final. Yeah. Whereas really what you want is like, like I said, Eben Etzebeth, like you want a Brad Thorne type of figure. Like really if you're Leinster, you're sort of going, like can we have two overseas players and we'll take Charlie Nadai and we'll take Eben Etzebeth. Or Skelton. Or Skelton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? But like we will... Because that means Mara Shell can't have him. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Yeah. Rocky Elsom reincarnate, please, would be the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But like that that's who you need to really move the needle to have interprovincial success. Now there's no evidence whatsoever that that's what's happened or that New Sephora has has been in charge. But you look at it Apart and you from go, the evidence of those players. But you look at it and you sort of go, hmm, like yeah. maybe there's something there. And the fact is that he's unknowable as a cipher from a media point of view so there's there's no leak there's there's nothing given away whatsoever so it's complete speculation completely he doesn't there's no uh, possible team like he's not leaking to the media he doesn't talk to jerry um he doesn't talk to anybody doesn't talk to fanning no no peter o'reilly doesn't talk to him like these this sort of the old guard he does not care it's a great way to be yeah yeah (laughs) really admirable and what do we know of uh, David Humphreys then, apart from his glittering career? Yeah, well, it's a different kettle of fish. David Humphreys, firstly, has a massive link to Ulster in that he coached them, managed them, coached them, captained them, won the European Cup with them. So that's a huge, deep, different kettle of fish. He's going to have to be able to resist... Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the the phrase I'm looking for is, but uh, recriminations from Ulster or um, proposals from Ulster, uh, and and show the same sort of absolutely dead-eyed stare to uh, to questions of uh, what's best for the game from. Um, like it has to be, his, he'll have to put aside Ulster and say what's best for the game in Ireland. It's a very, he's in a, he's in a harder position than David Nusifor is, in my opinion, because of his storied background with Ulster. Yeah, I, I agree. I think as well that Nusifora, again, rereading the Leviathan article, Nusifora had set up a successful business. So Nusifora had had a, a rocky enough time in the ARU when he was there, but he had like he had ideas, you know, like he had a view in the way things that should be done. He was the first non-Kiwi coach of a New Zealand, uh, I think it was Super Twelve franchise at the time. He was the head coach of the Auckland Blues. Um, like he, he had serious pedigree as a coach. He was on the bench when you, you know, the guy had to be injured for you to get off the bench. Um, when the Aussies won the World Cup in 1991. So he was at a very high-performing level. Like He was a world champion. Now, he only had two caps, but that's because Phil Kearns was ahead of him. And like Nusifora set up 
along with another guy, with a business partner, but like he was like a proper functioning business, like a, a proper um, like bricks and mortar, real leasing business that like did real business with real people. It, it didn't come in and the fact that he was a rugby international, like it was, it was planting machinery. It was dealing with finance. It, you know, so like he, he came with a very robust CV of a guy who'd been successful across a number of different spheres of his life. Now, David Humphreys also has a glittering CV. I suppose David Humphreys is, is slightly more by the numbers in that for a very talented guy from a small corner of the empire, he, you know, was an accomplished sportsman who went to Oxbridge. Like, he's one of the chums. When you look at it, you know, he went to Oxbridge, he played in the Colours match, he became a solicitor, like, he entered into the professions, and then he was... Worked with Jeepson. Yeah, I worked with Jeepson. And then, like, was his... uh, you know, like was was the captain of his home team, of his hometown team. But like Ulster didn't win anything under him. Gloucester didn't win anything under him. And and you're kind of looking at like, is he is he a colour by numbers, highly talented guy? But like, is he going to bring any earth shattering ideas? Like, has he has he really experienced any great failures or any great successes in his life, or is he just like a very accomplished guy, very talented guy who's, who's led a very accomplished sort of. Between the lines. Yeah, career. like a Swede Laval from American Pastoral. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a deep reference. <laughs> um, I, I, I remember um, Humphreys' exit from uh, Ulster being quite sudden to go to yeah. Gloucester. Um, and like he hasn't maintained a high profile uh, while at Gloucester. He's in a, well, he'd no, been, no, he moved. He moved to cricket. And he was at he was at Georgia yeah. for a stage before that, and like there wasn't there wasn't a huge demand for his services when he left Gloucester. Yeah, no, you know, like, like look, if if I if I'm being devil's advocate here, like he's not Scott Robertson, like this you you know like women don't want him, men don't want to be him, you know, <laughs> like I mean he's he's still David Humphreys, like there's a certain generation of Ulster players who do want to be David, you know, who do want to be yeah. David Humphreys, but like we're not talking about like. A breakdance and vibes merchant. We're not talking about a man of steel. We're not even talking about Andy Friend here, who's just like, you know, this affable sort of, you know, have knapsack, will travel, you know, just kind of bring the love, bring the couch in mind. Like, I mean, you know, we're talking about a guy who I went through his list of achievements, who is like a very, very capable operator, but he's between the lines. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And the, the how, how he, performs the role as, as sorry as we started to return some how he performs the role is going like is he going to give press conferences or are we now as when i say we i mean the sort of irish rugby public people who consume rugby media and aren't go to rugby games like week in week out uh like are, have we become used to the fact or expect the fact that like you're not going to know what the director of high performance does you don't know he doesn't have to tell you that's it for 10 years, we weren't told anything. Uh, is that, or is Humphreys going to say, oh, I'm going to sit down with Fanning, I'm going to sit down with Jerry Thorne or John Bradley in a Belfast uh, Telegraph or Herald? Bell, Bell Tell, Telegraph. Um, and, and give an interview. 
and say, this is what I'm going to try and do, which would be really fucking interesting. But like, he, he, he sort of doesn't have to know because Nusifor has, has set out that like, I don't answer to the rugby public. I answer to the CEO of the IRFU. That's my only boss. Are there going to be leaks? Like, does he talk by, by virtue of being Irish? Um, is he going to talk to more people in Ireland? Is he, cause like you he's said going to be in the rugby club. Like, who, who yeah. does he socialise with? He's going, to, he's going to be living in Dublin. He's going to be going back to Belfast. He's obviously going to talk to people that he knows. Like, yeah. They're going to be interested in rugby. Are they not going to talk about it? Are those people not going to talk to other people? Like, it's impossible to think that they won't. Maybe he won't, but it's going to be, you'd have to think it's going to be a different vibe. Absolutely. And a different level of information and a different sort of things, rumors circulating. And you're kind of going, that could be true, that might not be true. But like, it's, it's kind of credible because um, unless he keeps absolutely stumped, or unless he doesn't talk to anybody about it, like where else would they come from? Yeah, and you know, we've been, I've been sort of more uh, given more praise to Nusifor than maybe I intended to, but the, the the sort of logic of what I was saying once it went out of my brain through my mouth into the open air made me go, yeah, he's done a really good job and he deserves credit for it. But there is another way to approach it by being slightly more open and telling people what you're trying to do. Which doesn't, which, which like doesn't, you don't tell them, like you tell them the overall strategy, you don't tell them how you're going to try and achieve it. Like that wouldn't hurt. No, but I mean, it wouldn't hurt, of course, but like, I think we're just used to so much of the public relations about Ruby just being like fucking meaningless guff, like grow the game shit. And it's just like, so like, can we, can we do a sidebar grow the game? It's just like, I'd say the easiest win for David Humphreys would be to come out and say, I'm going to right the wrongs of the women's game because the women's game stalled under Nisifora. I'm like, I'm not an expert in it, but like, I know he put, he sort of put his chips down on the sevens game. And then you had players like, um, baby and Parsons, Steve Higgins, like a, not playing a, a, for the national players, team. Yeah. And then you're going like, well, so we're just turning up to the Six Nations, which is normally the biggest tournament that 15 side play, get absolutely pasted nearly all the games and our best players aren't playing it. Well, also we went backwards compared to other yeah, yeah. small teams, like yeah. whatever about France and England who have different infrastructure, they, they have pro teams and pro teams employ players yeah. over there, but we went backwards compared but, to Wales so, and Scotland. For, for Humphreys to come in, he can say, you know, it's easy to, it, it's, an, it's a relatively easy win. To, like to, if you pour money into the women's game, it's under it's been underperforming to such an extent that Potsy's already stolen that thunder. Like all the, the those changes started under yeah. Potsy. Like New Sephora didn't suddenly see the light. Potsy came in and goes, We have to start doing this. Whereas Philip Brown was there going, Oh, I'm just gonna I'll, I'll come and sit in front of the, the slings and arrows for another press conference. Like there was only really two or three. It was like COVID getting changed behind Donnybrook with the rats, etc. And then there was like a couple of you know, back to back. Well, one bad Six Nations and then he was gone. Like, whereas Potsy was like, came in and immediately, you know, basically set it, set in motion the women's professional game. So I, I don't think, I think that is, there's, there's ground to meet up there for but the big change has already happened and it's changed with a CEO. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, um, I guess it feels somewhat important that if he's Irish, he's not from Leinster or Munster because, it just would 
bring baggage with it. Whereas being from Ulster, um, it's just uh, even though they're obviously you know a huge part of Irish rugby, it just doesn't seem to have as much baggage as being from Dublin or being from Limerick, and in particular being from Dublin. Yeah, yeah, like I, I think that's it's hard to put that in a neat phrase, but I absolutely agree with that. No. Can we go on to another controversial Australian figure? We can go straight into uh, <laughs> Captain Cook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to talk about Eddie Jones? I always want to talk about Eddie Jones. I, I feel that um, the, the fact that he's actually left now has received far less... Like the, the, like the something that people were... Uh, either worried or uh, critical of as a rumor, now that it's happened, has attracted less comment than the rumor did. And it didn't seem to be a fait accompli. Like he was saying, I'm going to stick around. I came here to do a job and I'm going to see it out. Then all of a sudden, he changes his mind. And apparently he's, not apparently, he said it was because the ARU couldn't deliver what they said they were going to deliver. And you're going, holy shit, that is the pot calling the kettle black. You didn't fucking deliver what you said you were going to deliver. And now you're walking off. Like, that fella should be persona non grata in Australia. He really should be. He has, he led the Wallabies down into a fucking hole. And now he's left them there. And in doing that, he... Um, what was the word I was looking for? I used it earlier. He alienated a guy who was holding the Wallabies together through the worst period of their of their sort of era, worst period in the professional era in, in Michael Hooper. And not just alienated him, he sort of fucked him under the bus. He suggested that he wasn't the right character or he didn't have the character to lead the Wallabies. And Hooper has always, has over this period, completely stood above the fray. And, you know, said he's entitled to his opinion. I'm, I I have huge regrets I'm not in the squad, but he hasn't gone into a war of words. He's carried himself with great dignity, unlike Jones, who's carried himself with no dignity. And all of this bullshit talk about doing a smash and grab raid on the World Cup and about being here for the long term, and this is part of a, I'm building for the next World Cup, and then leaving, and then saying, oh, it's not me, I'm not leaving out any, it's because the ARU can't deliver what they said they're going to deliver. That is fucking rich. He has disgraced himself. And it's not just, this has not happened in isolation. This talk about England are going to do this, and England are going to do that for the last four years. England just got basically worse for the last three years until he got the sack. So he's just led, he has just had five dud years in a row and he still talks a big game. And to the point where you're going like, mate, you're actually getting a bit, f mate. You're, you're actually, this is delusional. This is not anything. You can say this shit. Like as, as Harrison Ford said to, to George Lucas, like you can write this shit, but you can't say it. Once that goes out into the open air, that's your public comment. People are, he's entitled. He doesn't have to say what, what people want to say. He doesn't have to apologize to the Australian rugby public or even people who are invested in the game like us and say, oh, I should have picked, I should have picked Hooper. I should have picked Quake Cooper. I should have had more 
leadership in my team. I shouldn't have tried to make so many changes at once that I had an interview. It doesn't have to say that he's entitled to his, his opinions. But once you start saying the sort of stuff he does and it gets out into the open air, the fresh air, like you can't expect to emerge with your credibility intact. No, it's a bit uncomfortable watching at this stage. Like I, I kind of wonder, is he mental? <laughs> uh, and like, you, you know, and there, there's such... Kind of, you don't know what to... I'm sort of caught in two minds. Like, there's such there's such greater awareness about mental health now than there was before. But there's also an element of pearl clutching about it that, like, people just go out and use the phrase without actually knowing what it means and then sort of, you know, nod their heads very sagely, well, you know, fair play to that, you know, for doing this with mental health and all the rest of it. And, you, and you're kind of going, what are you talking about? Other than just re- saying the words mental health and then nodding your head up and down sagely. Like, which bit? Which bit of compassion are you showing? Which bit of empathy are you showing here? Like, I don't get it. And, like, it, it is it is uncomfortable for me watching Eddie Jones because I'm there going, like... Because he's guy, always been a fan. This guy was a great coach, but, like, he's he's talking absolute nonsense here. Like, all this smash and grab nonsense. The way he treated Michael Hooper in particular, which you talked about, but, like, a number of his experienced players, the disservice he did to Australian rugby. And and you're kind of going, like, what on earth are you on a bit? Like, I, you, you don't have to apologize for it because, like, it's it's not your style, but, like... Like, what are you talking about? You know, and you kind of wonder, like, is he is he all together? And, like, that, that's why it's kind of uncomfortable watching it. Like, that, like it's it's an absolute car crash. Did he play in the same team as Nusa Fora? They're both hookers, so he... Yeah. He, he they both... Ran, ha- is Nusa Fora Randwick? Nusa Fora, no. He was he's university. Not, yeah, yeah. I uh, don't think he ever did. So both of them, both of them are really similar in that both of them like struggle along when when that club rugby was really strong in Australia they were seconds players for a long time and really nuggety hard-headed individuals and then finally when they were getting on like News 4 played a lot of game for University and Eddie Jones ended up playing a lot of games for Randwick and they both had like better players and bigger players in front of them uh, and both of them are like such hard-headed individuals real not the larrikin you know the Aussie digger. Yeah. Like the oh, other yeah. side both, of Aussie. Yeah, yeah. Both, uh, presumably from immigrant backgrounds or whatever. Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, Eddie's, um, I am constantly drawn to that. Is it Hamish McLennan fella? Hamish McLennan, yeah. He just seems like a total gobshite. Oh, well, like, you say wanker, I say gobshite. <laughs> or maybe it's the other way around. A wanker. He, but he just a Rupert Murdoch he, wanker. He exactly well like, um, it's an easy one to drop in and say the ARU didn't deliver when he's in charge of the ARU. It seems he seems like a fool. Like, oh, and 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 this is something which sorry to cut across you there. Uh, this is something which I said to you before. It's like you're the one who fucking sacked Dave Rennie right with six months to go to the World Cup, seven months, whatever. Um. And and brought in Eddie Jones and said, this guy's a proven winner. He's the best coach in the world. He's going to do this and that. So he fucking didn't do any of that. He instead lets him. So if it's me, I can't stand over that at all. I go, I, I did this. It didn't work out. I have to resign. I fucking have to. I'm the one who said this was going to work out. I'm the one who sacked a coach mid-season. 
I have to resign. He, uh, like not unlike a lot of other figures, not just in sports administration, but in politics, just doesn't ever feel that he has to actually take responsibility for things. He just says, oh, this is on me. You're on, well, if it's on you, resign. No, I, I can still do better. Well, you just done something supremely shit. Yeah, how, how are you going to like dig up, man? Like, yeah. how, how have you done it? Like, you, you cost the ARU because you had to pay off Dave Rennie. You cost the ARU by giving Eddie Jones a huge contract. You cost the ARU by Jones leaving. Yeah. And you had an abysmal World Cup. And, like, McLennan wasn't there for the entire preceding 15 years. And I was only thinking about this when I was cycling home. So I... I'd love to have the time but to do a dig in, but I don't, about how the NRL got into this, the situation that it got into. But, like, you look at Aussie Rugby Union in the early 90s, before it turned professional, and you go, like, it it had something. You look at it in the 90s, they won two World Cups, they won the Bledisloe. Like, they in hindsight, were really punching above their weight, but they didn't seem to be because the Wallabies were a real power. Yeah, they were a giant. They were a giant. Like, I mean, and particularly when in 1999, when the Springboks were back in, was a brilliant World Cup to win. Like, winning in 1991 and beating England at home was is a big result. But, like, you know, in hindsight, you sort of go, the All Blacks weren't particularly good. The All Blacks um, were bad. The Springboks weren't in it. And the rest while of the teams were bad as well. Yeah, while it's a great achievement to win it, um, like you didn't have to beat France in Europe, whereas 1999 didn't have any of that. Like 1999 had the Springboks and the All Blacks and France and England. It was played in the UK. It was a brilliant achievement. And, you know, it, it's sort of similar to, to English rugby. You go like, how do they, how did you, like, how do you not do what the NRL did? Like how, how have the NRL got to such a strong situation? And, like my my instinct is because they promoted the league and not any other team. They didn't do over any of their partners in TV. Like they stuck with it. I'd imagine they're still broadcast by the same people that were broadcasting them 20 years. People know where to find it. They know what the teams are called. They know what teams are in it. They know that it's on at the same time on the same channel. They enjoy doing it. Like it's, it's, it, it, there's, there's a ritual to it. They made origin an absolutely massive event and they do it again and again and again and again. And you're going, like, that's in your backyard. And you spend your time knocking them. Mate, like, they're miles better than you. Yeah. Miles better than you. <laughs> like, what are you knocking them for? It's, it's inc- I absolutely agree with you. Like, I, my, I, my first awareness of McLennan was when he took over and he got into some slanging match with the NRL. And I was like, dude. And, like, and, and fucking Aussie rugby unions were oh, this is great. He's slagging off the NRL and he's going, the NRL is shitting on you. And you the know? NRL guys ended up looking the classy ones. And, yeah. that, and you're there going, oh my God. Like you're, you're taking on the Aussie Rugby League guys and you're actually coming out on the wrong side of this from a classiness yeah. perspective. Like, mate, just like, like imagine, up, imagine, and, it's, and, and the NRL has become, well, always was much more the sport of the working class, the lower middle class in, so like the people's game. Imagine, imagine, the IRFU getting into a slagging match with the GAA. Like, fucking, the mind boggles. It's the stupidest thing to do. If anything, you're just, like, completely taken, neutral, like, absolutely fish-eyed approach, which is you're going, you're just, like, you see everything they do and you don't say it. 
maybe you open your mouth a few times to breathe. But he's he's been a he's been a disaster. Now he's not the only disaster for Australia, but he is a disaster. He should absolutely resign. Or there should be a motion to have him fucking sacked, thrown out of the place. And you know what, what? What I reckon, like everything that I read from the Roar or other Aussie media sources, is like they're like get new Safari and get him to do what he did at Ireland. You know, and there are there are just as there probably were at the start of professionalism in Ireland. There's somebody, somebody, uh, some of the let's just call them provinces. What do you call it? New South Wales and Queensland. Like some of them states, states, some of them have money and some of them don't. Some of them think this is a good idea and some of them don't. There has to be, there has to be a figure they can actually, that is actually quite, you know, that not everyone fucking dislikes so they can get in the same room and go, this has to happen lads because like we are going downhill so fast. There won't be a game to administer in another 10 years of this. You know, we'll be playing in, you know, flying rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong soon enough. Um, so sorry, we've gone into the massive picture stuff instead of like the, those two points I've been sort of not gleefully, but I've had not held back at all in my criticism of, of Eddie Jones there. And what you've said has actually made me think like, yeah, I haven't shown fucking any empathy there, but I don't think, I'm not sure that he is a figure who through how he's carried himself has, has earned I don't know the, the shit that he sees on social media or something that could be horrific and then I would feel sorry for him. I don't, I don't feel sorry for him. I feel this is a fellow who brings an awful lot of shit on himself. The hallmark of his time when he was at England, apart from initial success followed by a kind of an incoherence, was the amount of turnover in his coaching staff mm. and like how when he was successful, a lot of people talked about the intensity um and then when he wasn't successful nobody really nobody talked like nobody stabbed him in the back they just left and you're going my god like there's another one but i think that's one of the things like i i don't think i think that like that's one of the features of the rfu's finances is like they've been signing fucking nras with people left right and center and paying them off because rugby's not that big and there's been a lot of sacked coaches out of that or the coaches who have left. There was an Aussie coach who left before the World Cup. His backs N- coach left. NDAs, not NRAs. Non-disclosure <laughs> associations. Non-disclosure agreements. Non-disclosure agreements is what I mean. So I, I think that those have, I'd be surprised. Like DR, DRFU is run by, like, it's run by old mutual wealth and legal bigwigs. You know, that's who their sponsors are, like legal yeah, yeah, and yeah, finance. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that is something that's been happening that players sorry coaches rather have just gone there's a standard not a national rifle association that they all sign (laughs) and 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 that's why you don't hear coming out because you know like the the turnover has been staggering and he's like i read bill walsh the score takes care of itself recently um which i would recommend to everyone you can get it on the kindle rather than buying it because i don't think it's in print it's cost a fortune but that's a fantastic book. And Bill Walsh talks about the last five or six chapters. Uh, it took him, he was, uh, he was, uh, Bill Walsh was a former coach of the San Francisco 49ers in the 80s. Um, and he was, 
he was asked to write this book and then he started it and then told the fellow he was ghostwriting went, no, I'm not going to do it. And then came back to it 10 years later. He'd done all these essays and prepared a lot of the work himself. But he became completely, he writes about it himself with self-reflection and after his career, he's like, oh, no, just, the pressure became staggering to, to the point where I had never had enough time in the day. Not, winning was never enough, ever, ever. Winning was just the baseline. It didn't matter how much we won by, it was never good enough. And it would just completely change his personality, burnt him out. Burnt him out, to, but he was still working 18 and 19 hour days as a 60-odd-year-old man. And you're going, that workaholic gene. I would see the same in Eddie Jones, except without the... And Bill Walsh is very confident in his own abilities. Now, he had he had more... Yeah, it was a far more classy individual than... Eddie Jones, but incredibly confident of how good he was. But that working through, and that just changed his personality. And he admits it himself, not to the same extent as his son who writes the afterward, goes, yeah, it did change an awful lot. But he recognized himself to change. And I just look at Eddie Jones. like He just has made so many bad decisions over the last five, four or five years, four years really. You're going, this is a guy who has always burnt out relationships at the end of practically every coaching job he's had. He's burnt burnt the bridges behind him. But this is an enormous one. This is his home union. And his and it, like it's 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 his tribe. You know, yeah. like it's his like he's a real Aussie rugby guy. Yeah. Um there's a few other things about Bill Walsh, just while we're on him. I don't know. The next time we're gonna to talk to him, not only was the head he was the head coach of San Francisco, he was also the general manager. He, yes. was front, he was he was front and back office, which was like was and is um, extremely unusual in the NFL. But he he came to the 49ers. They were owned by Eddie DeBartolo. DeBartolo. And um he'd sort of he hadn't come up with the West Coast offense on the Cincinnati team, but he was, you know, offensive coordinator and you know, he really improved them. Um and like two things, two little anecdotes stand out. One is that himself and his wife were out for dinner in a you know, Chinese restaurant with friends. And there was a lot of conversation going around the table, but there was nothing coming from uh, Bill Walsh. And his wife just looked over and said, what is it, Bill? Third and two. And the other one was after they got beaten in a, in a Super Bowl, Walsh was was distraught and like was absolutely emotional spent and he he didn't address the he didn't address the players at the end or he said like a very cursory goodbye to them and like a load of the players Ronnie Lott in particular absolutely held it against him it was like what they felt was that they as players had let him down and there was a no emotional connection whatsoever whereas like the two obvious guys who come to mind in rugby are Andy Farrell and Scott Robertson and also, like the third is 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 Ronan O'Gara, who you know in his Jim Hamilton article talks so much about that emotional connection and like you know that awareness that like you have to have it with your parents mm-hmm. that not everybody is an absolute workaholic mentalist like you are, <laughs> you know. Like so, even if you are a workaholic mentalist, you have to present the human side of that workaholic mentalist. And ah, like Eddie's just lost it, man. He's completely bonkers. <laughs> That's where we wrap up our Australian sports administrator chat <laughs> for seven <70 Niche>. minutes. <laughs>
Bye.